morning, Southbridge. Bonjour. It's great to be here. Hola. We are glad to be a diverse congregation. It's French, Spanish, English. Anyway, we're glad that you're here. If you're a guest, uh, I just want to say a special welcome to you. Thank you so much for coming and checking out our church. Hopefully you've been blessed on your way in already today. We put a little card on the bottom of uh, the program that we handed you on the way in uh, called a connection card. We just ask you, the one thing we ask you to do today is take a moment and fill it out. Tell us how you heard about us as a church. We want to invite as many people as we can. Our church oftentimes people are inviting their friends. And uh, the thing we ask you is fill out that card. And when you fill that card out and then take it out to the orange tent on your way out the front doors by the guest parking, if you take it to that orange tent, we've got a gift for you. We also make a donation to a ministry called Women at Risk International, which is a ministry that helps uh, rescue women out of human trafficking situations, uh, sex slavery and labor slavery and things along those lines, and, and try to connect them to Jesus so their lives can be transformed the same as we hope that your life is transformed. Uh, here today because you were with us today. And so while you take a moment and fill out that card, I'll just say to our church family, uh, today's a great day. We're celebrating baptisms today, which is always fun for our church, where church makes a big deal about life change, and that is a step of obedience for people. It's oftentimes the first step that someone takes after they trust Jesus as their Savior is to let the world know they're a follower of Jesus. And we've got this, this crazy thing that Jesus told us to do where we dunk people underwater and then pull them back up out of the water. And it can seem really weird if you've never been a part of that before. Uh, but essentially what it is is a picture of Jesus' death when he was buried in the grave and then risen from the dead. And so we're saying you died to an old way of life. You're raised to walk in a new way of life. And so you might see some people today that have raised the life shirts on. Uh, some people are going to be being baptized. If you've never been baptized, you want to be baptized today, we would love to do that. And all you have to do is after the second service, go out. There's going to be a tent out there by the orange tent and uh, talk to some folks. Tell them how you know Jesus is your Savior and why it is you want to be baptized. And uh, we would love to baptize you today. And if you're not being baptized, you've already been baptized, uh, we'd love for you to come celebrate with us. And so I know this is the first service and it's going to be several hours. I think it'll be about 1230 when we do baptisms. Some of you are going to be serving and you're on the teardown team. Let me say this, take a time out. Uh, we can stay longer and come on over and maybe you can recruit someone to be on the teardown team with you uh, to go back afterwards. But come over, celebrate with us. Some of you, I know you, we oftentimes promote to our whole church, we want you to worship in one service and serve in the other service. Uh, but you don't serve every week, and so some people have off weeks, and maybe you're going home or going to lunch or whatever it is. Come back. We'd love to have you back to celebrate baptisms at 1230. And so you're all invited to that. And I've rambled for long enough. Hopefully you've been able to fill out the guest card now. And I'm going to pray, and we're going to jump back into the book of Mark. We've been doing this series called The Invitation, and so we're going to get back into that. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you uh, that we can come, and we've sang songs to you. We've told you how great we think you are, and I pray that you would speak into our hearts right now. And you would speak to us. And if you want to encourage us, encourage us. If you want to convict us, convict us. But however you decide to do it in these next few moments, will you change us to be more like your son, Jesus? I pray if there are those that don't know your son, that are listening to these words even right now, that you'd begin to draw them to you in these moments that they trust your son, Jesus, as Savior, during this service. And I pray for those that know you, that you'd grow them, that we'd go into the next level of our relationship with you, whatever that looks like for each one of us today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but there's an election coming up, and uh, we don't talk about politics a lot here at our church, but maybe on your way driving in today, you saw a bunch of signs that had names on them on the side of the road. I'm wondering, please don't raise your hand, but I'm wondering, has anyone ever seen a road sign with a name that says nothing about the person and thought, I know that name, I'm voting for them? Just observation, there's election happening. It's been on the news a little bit, I don't know if you've seen that, and some of you may have received voters guides and the voters guides will tell you oftentimes what a candidate is for and what they're against now i'm not here to talk to you about who to vote for or any of that stuff i hope that everyone will vote but think about those voters guides that you get and oftentimes whatever it is that they say that they're for dictates what they're against 
So if they're for life, they're against abortion. If they're for freedom of speech, they're against censorship. And you can pick whatever topic. If they're for one thing, they're against the other thing. But here's what I want you to realize. That truth is not just in the political arena. It's in other areas of life. It's not an absolute truth, like just because you're for something, you're against everything else, but it's a general, it's a proverbial truth that's oftentimes true. If you're for one thing, you're often against something else. Let me prove it to you. How many people here are for the NC State Wolf Pack? You're real quiet today because of what happened yesterday, but make a little noise. Huh? You're for the Wolf Pack? How many? Make some noise. All right. Then what are you naturally against? Tar Heels. That's exactly right. Now we can keep playing this game. UNC Tar Heel fans, do we have any of those here today? Yeah. All right. Fewer but louder, I think, maybe. What are you naturally against? It's, that's the way rivalries work. Don't be offended, NC State fans. That's just the way that it happens. And we could keep going with different schools. But it's not just sports and it's not just politics. It happens in a lot of areas of life. Like, for instance, if you're for healthy eating, you're against the fair, right? <laughs> no, don't if, but if you're for, some people are for sleep. I was thinking about this this week. Every one of us has to sleep. Like, we're finite beings. We have to, it's just part of us being weak. We have to sleep. But some people love sleep. You're for sleep if you hit snooze more than twice in the morning. No conviction at this moment. We're just getting started. My wife, if she hears the alarm clock at a time when it's not time to get up, she's upset. She makes noises. The other day, I used the alarm clock on my phone, and I, I pushed the button to make sure that it was working right. And she, oh, it was like the middle of the day. She's upset at the clock. She's for sleep. If you're for sleep, you're against the alarm clock. If you're for comfort, you're against camping. If you're for cleanliness, you're against being dirty. If you're for kale, you're against everything good in life. That's right. It's just what happens. See, there's things that we're for, and if we're for those things, then we're, by nature of being for that thing, you're against something else. Now, in our series in Mark that we're doing, we're talking about what does it look like to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ have something that they're for, first and foremost, above everything else, and so then it dictates what we're against. That's what we're going to talk about today. And I hope that what we talk about today in your own heart goes far beyond politics, beyond the noise, beyond all the stuff that happens in life, and we get to your heart, and you can honestly answer for yourself, what are you for, first and foremost, in your life? Because we're talking about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, and the key is that followers of Jesus actually follow Jesus. There's no such thing as a follower who doesn't follow. And that's what we've been seeing in this book. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9 today, looking at verses 38, Lord willing, all the way through verse 50. Well, since we took a break for a couple weeks, let me just remind you of the whole context of the book of Mark. We started back in January in Mark, and we did this first series called Who Is This Jesus? And the whole first section of Mark, Mark chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through Mark chapter 8, and verses 27 through 30, are about who is Jesus. And it comes to a climax when Jesus looks at his 12 closest followers and says, who do people say that I am? And then Peter eventually says, you are the Christ. And now what happens if we get into a new section of Mark, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, all the way to Mark chapter 10, verse 52, is about the exact same thing. What it means for Jesus to be the Christ, and what that then means for us to follow him. And what we see is there's no such thing. Christians often, people oftentimes call on the name of Christ without actually doing what Christ says to do. And Jesus is telling us there's no such thing as that. That's not really a follower. There's no such thing as a follower who doesn't follow. What does a follower do? The same thing Jesus did. He says, if anyone throughout history, anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and come after me. Then he takes his buddies, three of his closest buddies, up on a mountaintop to encourage them because he knows that's tough teaching. 
they get a glimpse of his glory. He comes down, they've just blown it. They've just failed at casting out a demon, something they've had success doing in the past. And then they get ironically in an argument about how awesome they are. Who's the greatest? So they've just failed big time. They fail to even pray. Then they argue about which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom, which is ridiculous, but very true to many of us. And what Jesus says is that it's okay to be great. It's okay to desire to be great. Your ambition is not evil. Your selfish ambition is wrong. And he says, if anyone wants to be great, you're just going down the wrong path. You need to be last and be the servant of all. And then maybe you remember he was in a house, probably Peter's house, and he grabs a child, and he uses this child like an object lesson. And many of us, if we see a kid, we think to ourselves, oh, he's cute, or he's smart, or whatever thing about it. That's my Stevie or Johnny or whatever. That's not what they would have thought of here. Kids were considered, they didn't have any power, they had no position. And while a lot of times kids don't have titles in our day and age, they've got power and they've got position, because oftentimes we let everything revolve around them. What Jesus was giving a picture of was the exact opposite of that. And then he says in verse 37, to give us our context for what we're going to see in verses 38 through 50, he says this, whoever welcomes one of these little children, remember the least, the lowest, the last, in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Gets God. You get God in this process. And then because of that, the apostle John apparently had some conviction in his heart. So he brings up this scenario to Jesus. Look at it in verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. And then look at this, for whoever is not against us is for us. He says it the opposite way in another gospel account. If you're not for us, you are against us. There's no neutrality with Jesus. You're either for him or you're against him. Verse 41, I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. And so think about the situation that we're reading just in those few verses. You've got the Apostle John. He's there. He's in this house. There's just been this argument about who's the greatest. And then Jesus says, if you want to be greatest, you've got to be last. And he takes one of the last, one of the least, a child. Whoever welcomes one of these in my name. And then something happens with John. And maybe it was that phrase, in my name, Maybe it's seeing the child, maybe it's saying welcomes and receives rather than rejects. But have you ever had one of those moments in life where maybe you're watching a movie or you hear a song or it's, you know, the fresh cut grass in the fall, like there's some fragrance, there's something that jars a memory in your life. Perhaps it's something from your past you haven't dealt with. And here, that's what happened with John. And we're not sure if he thinks like it's conviction or if he's just wondering whether what he did was wrong or not wrong. And he says, well, there was this one time where there was this guy and he was casting out demons, which is ironic because they just failed to cast out demons. One demon. This guy was casting out multiple demons. And we told him to stop. But then you notice, Jesus says, don't, don't tell him to stop. This guy's never even named. But there's a name that keeps getting mentioned that connects the last passage with the one we're in today. So if you study your Bibles, you might want to mark this in there, this phrase that's repeated. In verse 37, it says, you welcome one of these child in my name. Then verse 38, even John's the one who says, he was doing these miracles in your name. And then verse 39, Jesus said, don't stop them. No one who's doing something in my name can then turn around and reject me. And then he gives that, verse 40 is a statement about being foreign again. So then verse 41, again, he gives the... the exact opposite end of the extreme of so he's doing miracles in my name or doing the most mundane menial tasks in my name verse 41 
So what we see here is that what Jesus is doing is he takes this opportunity that one of his disciples, one of his closest followers, is feeling a moment of conviction or confusion or something's come up from his past. He's not sure how to deal with it. He brings a great response, brings it to Jesus. And what Jesus does is to show what he's for. And what he's for is the fame of his name. He's saying, don't reject this guy. The guy's not even mentioned. That's significant. His name's not mentioned. He's casting out multiple demons. But he's not that popular because he's doing it for the name of Jesus Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ are first and foremost primarily for the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. The very fact that John's bringing this question up reveals his heart. What happened in that situation? He doesn't say it directly here, but remember what he's commanded to do. Deny yourself. And what's he saying here? No, you're not one of the 12. You can't do this. We're special. We're significant. He's thinking about himself. What Jesus is showing here is not about you. If you're my follower, you live for the fame of my name. That's our first point today. The followers of Jesus Christ are for the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. And if you go through the whole Bible, you see that the name of God is significant. It's in the Ten Commandments, not to misuse his name. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 7, it says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6, the very first thing he says in that prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed. It means separate, set apart. It comes from the, the root word holy. Set apart, holy is your, your name is different, God, than every other name. So different than the names on the signs that we see on the road, different than the company you work for, different than your family name, different than any team name, different than any name, God's name is different name. And it's a name that's to be glorified, and that's the purpose of our lives. And so don't miss this. This is a key premise to what we're gonna say in the rest of this message. That if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your life is not about you. In spite of how many people that you will meet in church behave about their relationship with Jesus, like Jesus is their personal therapist. He's just there to make, build up their self-esteem. Or that Jesus is their personal assistant. In a time of need, you can call upon Jesus and he will help you accomplish your goals. That's not what it is to follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is you're actually there to serve him. That he is Lord when you call upon him. That he is Lord, that his name becomes the thing that ultimately your whole life is about. And so we talk about our vision as a church. And we, oftentimes the passage we use is Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. Our vision as a church, by the way, is that we would see a city redeemed. Ultimately it's global. We want the whole world to come to know Christ. That the gospel be preached to the nations. But God's placed us here in this place. And so we often talk about this city. And because there's people in our city who are on their way to hell, they're not redeemed. So we want them connected to Jesus Christ so they can be redeemed. There's marriages that are falling apart. We want those marriages reconciled. There's people that have addictions and, and bondage to worshiping creation rather than the creator. And we want all that to be different so their lives can ultimately be the very thing that God desires to do in their lives, that he would begin a good work in them and save them and redeem them and continue to do that work so it doesn't stop at salvation. The way that Matthew says, or Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, is he says that, that you should let your light, what is your light? Well, you have the power of the Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead living inside of you, that empowers you to actually fulfill the commands that Jesus gives. Let your light so shine before men, all the people that see your life, that they may see your life, your good deeds, the way that you live your life, and then not think that you're awesome, but wouldn't that be the natural response? But praise your Father in heaven, because you don't live for your name. You live for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. Is that true about you? That's the real question for us. Because some of us, you could look at, look at our social media over the last six months. And 
do you live for the fame of the name of a political viewpoint, party, maybe person? I hope you're offended. You can go ahead and email me. I won't respond. <laughs> do you talk more about your political affiliations than you do about the redeemer of your souls? Or you can pick other things. Essential oils, your favorite sports team, uh, your job company that you work for, yourself. What name do you live for? Do you live for the fame of your name, your company's name, the product you're selling's name, whatever? Or is it for the fame of the name of Jesus Christ, the one who redeemed your soul that we were singing songs to a few minutes ago? And here you've got John in this situation, and he's confused about what's happened or convicted. We don't know for sure. But something triggers in his heart from what Jesus says about welcoming one of these children in my name. And then you go back to the situation. They've just argued about who's the greatest. They've just failed to cast out a demon. They've just been commanded to deny themselves. And then John says, well, there was a situation where we saw, maybe in the situation he thought he was doing what was right. We saw this guy, but he wasn't one of the 12, wasn't one of your closest followers. And so we didn't want, he wasn't, and notice he wasn't following, he doesn't say you, Jesus. He says us. He wasn't following us. It's not about our church. It's not about our denomination. It's not about our political parties. It's not about anything. It's about Jesus Christ. But he's doing it in your name. That's the guy that was right, not John and not the 12. And Jesus says, do not stop him. No one does a miracle in my name can the next moment say anything bad about me. <laughs> my name has power. There's something about my name. But you can't just use it as a magical formula either, by the way. It's like, I don't want people to be misled here. There's a story you can read in Acts chapter 19 on your own. It's a crazy story. Acts chapter 19, I think it's verses 11 through 20. What happens there is there are some guys that are trying to exercise demons, and they, they know the name Jesus, and so they try to use the name Jesus. They come into contact with this one guy who's possessed by a demon who says, um, I know Jesus, and I've heard of Paul, because they're saying, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. They don't even know Jesus. And he says, but I don't know you. And then the, de the demon-possessed guy jumps on them, beats them down with a biblical beatdown. A biblical beatdown is you leave naked. Read it, Acts chapter 19. They get their butts so whipped, they leave bloody and naked running out of the house. It's like a funny story if it didn't actually happen to somebody. You're like, read it. You're like what, seriously? It's in the Bible? And so you can't just, it's like how some of us use when we pray. In Jesus' name, like it's going to help us get our prayer answered. What does that really mean? What does it mean to do something in Jesus' name? Here's what it means. It means to do it by his power as his representatives. Don't miss that. To be living in his name means you're living, trusting him by faith in his power, the very spirit that he's put in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ as his representatives. It's not about your name. You live for his name. It's like the Westminster Confession says, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. What does verse 37 say? You receive one of these. You're doing stuff in my name, then you receive me. Guess what you get? Joy. Because he's the one that will really fulfill. Your job's not going to fulfill you. And you can keep changing it and keep being frustrated with it or whatever you want to do. You can enjoy it. It's great. But it's not going to fulfill you. And your marriage isn't going to fulfill you, and your experiences aren't going to fulfill you. Creation's not going to fulfill you. Creation was designed to point you to the creator, the only one that can fulfill you. So you live your life actually doing, it's the same as the disciples when they are arguing about who's the greatest. We think there's something we want, satisfaction and joy and fulfillment, and, and Jesus isn't going to rebuke that ambition. He put that in you. But what we do is we make the mistake of going down the wrong path, the same as the disciples were in their pursuit of greatness. He's just going to change your path. No, you're making your life all about you, and that's going to make you sick. You need to make your life about me because it's what you're designed for, and then you'll have the very joy that you desire in your life. We live for the sake of my name, and that name is a significant name. You just look in the book of Acts. There's no other name 
under heaven, on earth, by which men shall be saved, but the name of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Acts chapter 10 says this, that forgiveness comes through that name. Acts chapter 10 and verse 43. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. You see how the early church behaved about the name of Jesus? In Acts chapter 5 and verse 40 and 41, it says this. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in, had them flogged. Talking about a speech that was given on behalf of the disciples. They get flogged. Same kind of punishment Jesus receives before he's crucified. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. That's crazy talk. Who would do that? Because they, thought, because they lived their lives for the sake of the name, they would even suffer, and many even die for the name of Jesus Christ. That's a significant name. It's not just another name. Then, if people would willing to willingly die for the name of Jesus, I was reading a story this week about a woman, Alice Asaf. If you want to look it up, she was uh, in Syria in Damascus, and she told a story of how ISIS had come into their village, brutally killed, I can't even tell the details, it's just too graphic, of brutally killed a bunch of people in their village. It was uh, hundreds of people. There were over 200 families that had someone killed, and some families were more than one person. And they came in, and they first started attacking the Christians, and then went after the people that were in the Syrian army personnel. And Alice says that that day when she woke up, it was about 6 a.m. when they came into their village. Her husband was actually out of town that, that day. And she started telling her family they needed to hide. Her son didn't want to hide. Her son said to her, you're the one who taught me that if you deny Jesus before men, that he'll deny you before the Father, which is in the Bible. So he didn't want to hide his faith. And they had a Muslim neighbor come to him and say, hey, you just need to tell him that this is your name. Use a Muslim name. And he said, I'm not going to die with a fake identity. And then she tells the story how they had heard about how gruesome this stuff was. Some, some of them went into, they went into a bakery. They burned six guys alive. They killed some babies in ways that I really, I can't even say. You, you, if you want to know, you can read it on your own. A couple hundred babies. And they were, they were in their home, and they had a couple Syrian army personnel, after a few days, come into their home and try and hide at the house. One of their neighbors told ISIS that they were hiding Syrian army personnel, so ISIS came into their home, grabbed the son, started to beat him, the mom said, Alice said, I started to pray that when I heard my son's screams that he would be shot so that he wouldn't have to suffer so much because she had no doubt that he was going to be killed. And they did shoot him. And she said she takes solace, comfort in the fact that he died staying faithful to Jesus Christ. And I read that story. And obviously there's power in the name of Jesus. That someone would die for the name of Jesus. I'm going to be transparent with you about some of the thoughts I had afterwards. and I don't want to take anything away from that man giving his life for Jesus. The, the blood of the martyrs is the, the, you know, the seed of the church. I totally agree with Stephen, died first martyr, and Jesus obviously shed his blood for our sins. And I'm not saying it's insignificant to die, but sometimes I wonder, would that be easier? Because it's a one-time decision. I don't know if I'd do it. I, don't, I can't say that I would die for my faith because I'm not in that situation. I'd like to think, maybe it's Christian bravado, hopefully it's the Holy Spirit, that I would, but maybe I would chicken out. I don't know. I just haven't been put in that situation. But sometimes I wonder, is it harder to live for Jesus than it would be, because that's a one-time decision, it'd be awful, but then you get to be with Jesus. Then it would be to die for Jesus. Because then there's, like, I blow it in the daily, like the mundane stuff that happens in life. And so I... I get upset in the TSA line on the airplane because they're slowing me down. They have a reserved seat for me, but I'm still mad at them in this process. Because here's what happens for me, by the way, when I fly. 
I am always randomly selected. And I wonder, how random is it? Out of 150 people, I always get picked. How does this happen? To me, it doesn't seem that random. Maybe it's just a sign that I'm one of the elect in the Bible. Perhaps that's the case. But I think probably what it is is God. Hey, that guy needs to work on his patience. Let's try this again, Scott. And again, it doesn't usually go well. But I, I blow it in that. But then you look at this passage, you go back. You've got this like, extreme example, like someone dying for their faith. There's this guy, he's casting out, verse 38, demons, plural, in your name. They just failed to cast out demons. The guy's telling the story. And then you jump down to verse 41, and verse 41 he says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water, the most mundane, menial task, in my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. Be faithful even in the so you can live for the fame of his name even in the most mundane things. Even when you're in the line at the grocery store or at TSA or you're driving in the car and you decide not to accelerate to let the guy merge. So we've both been on both sides of that, right? When you're putting the kids to bed, when you're doing a report for your boss that you don't want to do and you'd rather take some shortcuts because he's probably not going to really read it anyways, but you decide to be faithful. He says here to give a cup of water. That is the most basic form of hospitality. He's probably referring to someone who's very poor, who doesn't have the resources to give wine, or we would, you know, cola, or whatever other option. We got all kinds of thousands and thousands of options. They don't have an option. They're, that's all they got is water. They give a blanket. You give your shoes. You would do the most basic thing. That's going to be rewarded. Because if it's done, and the key phrase in that verse, in my name, by my power, as my representative... So the extreme stuff, maybe some of you uh, know people. I don't, we haven't started the exorcism team yet at our church. We've got a lot of teams, a lot of ministries that happen. Haven't done that. If anyone wants to volunteer, we could talk about that after the service. Maybe you know a guy who exercised a demon once. But extraordinary statement, verse 38, right? He's casting out multiple demons in your name. Or then the other end of the extreme, verse 41, giving a cup of water. The most basic act of kindness. In your name. Both matter. And both are for the fame of the name of Jesus Christ. If done in dependence upon him as his representatives, which should be incredibly encouraging for so many of us that live much more of our lives doing the daily grind than we do doing the extreme, extraordinary things. I love the passage of scripture. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, when you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything to the glory of God. And then we get told here, and you will be rewarded. Everything done for the fame of the name of Jesus Christ will be rewarded. But then we get the contrast in the next verse, which I haven't read yet. Verse 42 says, then if you do anything that hinders someone from belief in Jesus, you will be punished. Look at verse 42 with me. You get in the positive in verse 41, you get the negative in verse 42, which then starts to talk about what Jesus is against. We've talked about what he's for. He's for the fame of his name. Do you know what he's against? He's against anything and everything that hinders belief in his name, that hinders belief in Jesus. Verse 42 says this, and if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, and little ones there probably doesn't just mean children, probably means all like immature disciples, people that are believe, they've made a profession of faith in Jesus, but they can be easily manipulated to believe things that aren't true, that sound true. Probably means that. 
anyone who believes in me to sin, it would be better. Hypothetical situation, but then he talks about a mafia killing. So don't get mad at me for being graphic and preaching. Look what Jesus says here. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. So take this huge millstone that would be uh, like you would use to crush things, like not the size, it says a great millstone, not that like a woman would use to crush things in, in her kitchen, but like a donkey would use to, to crush things, a large animal would use. You tie it around some dude's neck, you throw him in the sea. That's bad. Is that good commentary? That's, just, that's not good. But Jesus says, go back, he said, it would be better for that to happen to you, which is really interesting for a Jewish listener because the Jews believed that to, that was like the worst kind of death because you weren't even buried. The body wasn't even buried. Pagans believed in that time if you died at sea that you would then be stuck for eternity haunting that area of the water. This is the worst kind of death. And Jesus says, it'd be better for you to have that happen than for you to cause someone else to, if you hinder belief in Jesus Christ. You live before the famous name against everything that causes someone not to believe which is called sin, by the way. Because all unbelief is sin, and all sin is actually an act of unbelief. And we don't think about it in the moment. When we're tempted with whatever, and we're angry, lack patience, jealous, gossip, materialism, like whatever our stuff is, lust. I think it was just like this thing that I do. No, it's always an act of belief. Because you don't believe that the glory of God is worth giving your life to. You believe something else is better. You think that God's holding out on you for some reason. He's, he either doesn't want what's best for you or is unable to deliver what is best for you. And so we get these ideas in our head. It's always a belief issue. And the belief will be that something's better than what God has. It's like Adam and Eve in the garden. They, they didn't think about all that they did have. They thought about the one thing that God told them not to have, that God must be holding out. And then we get other twisted versions of that lie that come into our lives that, that he's holding out or that he's not capable, he's not powerful enough, he's not good enough, he's not gracious enough, and we don't revel in his holiness, we're not into his grace, his mercy, his love, all the things that he offers, he promises, we go after something else, That's, it's an, actually an act of unbelief. And what Jesus does next in this passage is he uses back-to-back-to-back illustrations on saying one main point. And the illustration over and over and over again is do whatever you have to do to deal with sin in your life. Look what he says in verses 43 through 48. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire does not go out. Verse 45. And, the illustration teaches the same point. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so here Jesus is saying, you do whatever it takes. And I've shared illustrations with you before. Aaron Ralston, I don't remember him, he's a hiker. He gets a boulder trapped on his arm. He cuts his arm off to save his life. Pretty extreme. I think one time I shared an illustration with you of a guy who cut his leg off to save his life. Like, that's a big deal. But think about that for a second. They were saving their lives. I don't know how old they were at that moment, but say we're going to live to be 70, 80 years old. Maybe they, they, were, they were saving for 40 or 50 years maybe. If it happened when you are a baby, 80 years. Okay, Jesus is saying what's happening in your life now is way more important than that. Way more important than saving your physical life. He's talking about eternity, and the consequences he talks about in each one of these illustrations is hell. And some people say, well, I don't believe in hell. Okay. You not believing in it doesn't change whether it exists. Jesus believed in it. 
And people who think that hell is just an Old Testament concept used to scare people or manipulate people into being good boys and good girls, Jesus talks about it more than anyone else in the Bible, and he's in the New Testament. Twelve times the words mentioned in the New Testament, 11 of them are by Jesus. What is hell like? I've got a list, and I've got some other passages you can look up on your own in your own study if you want. It's a place prepared for the devil. That's Matthew chapter 25, verse 41. Punishment there is forever. It's eternal. Revelation 20, verse 10. The wicked will be thrown there into hell. Psalm 9, verse 17. Body and soul suffer in hell forever. Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Believers try to keep other people from going to hell. Jude 1, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude 1, 23. The beast, false prophets, the devil will be cast into hell. Revelation 19, 20. But here's a great one. The powers of hell can't prevail against the church. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Hell's real. And the picture that Jesus is giving of it here is probably would be thought of by first century Jews as a, a valley called uh, Hinnom that was there. He uses the word Gehenna, and those words are connected. And what he's talking about there is a place that in the Old Testament, when you read about it, it was a valley where they would do child sacrifices, that children would be burned alive there. People, even parents would bring their own kids there to sacrifice to a god. One of the gods, the most popular one, is named Moloch. And they actually ended up uh, coming up with another name for the place that's got a, it's a derivative from a Hebrew word that means drum, probably because they would beat drums there so you couldn't hear the baby screaming while they were dying. But what happened was there was a, a, a righteous king, a king who repented. He turned to God. His name was Josiah. And he said, that's no longer going to be a place of sacrifice. He turned it into a garbage dump. And so by the time that Jesus is preaching, it's a garbage dump where in the south part of Jerusalem, where people would take their garbage and they would light it on fire, there'd be worms in it. And it's a word picture that people would think that's the worst place ever. And what Jesus is saying, think of that. Think of the worst thing you can think of forever. That's, what we're ta- that's why this is serious. Jesus is saying, this is serious. Deal radically with your sin because the consequences are serious, which is striking when you think about what many of us do with our sin. We're so casual with our sin. I remember when I was a youth pastor, oftentimes I would get the question, and I don't know if you get this, Pastor Dan, or not, but I would get the question, how far can I go with my girlfriend? It seems like it was usually the guys that were asking that question. I'm just saying. How far? It's like, how close to the edge can I get? Some of you watch me when I'm preaching. Like, why does it get so close to the edge of the thing? We shouldn't, that's a bad question. Why are you trying to get as close as you can? Jesus is saying, no, get as far away as you can. The, the consequences are too big of a deal. But we do it as adults, too. What we do is we've got to say, all of us have sin. We all sin. It's still, it's still part of it, whether you believe or not a believer. We've all got sin in our lives. And what many of us do with our sin is that we, it's like we develop a relationship with it. I was thinking about it this week. It's almost like there are, it's like a pet in our lives. Where we go to it at certain times, and we might feed it, and we care for it, we might talk to it, it's there for it, we use it as an escape, whatever the various reasons are in life, but it's there for us. And then I started thinking about, you hear these stories every once in a while, of people have these exotic pets, and so I googled exotic pets who kill their owners. And people have pet deer, like 500 pound deer killed somebody. A black bear, tiger, snakes of course, there was one story about a guy who had a spider, let me give you a life tip, if you have a spider as a pet, don't. Um... All these animals, like there's these things that they were, at one time, I don't know what you do if you have a pet python. Maybe it's like, you know, Stevie the snake. What do you name a snake? Anybody have a pet snake here? You're like petting it, you feed the snake, and then one day you don't wake up because the snake killed you. And what Jesus is saying, that's what your sin is like. We, we comfort it, and we, care, we keep it around, we rationalize and justify why it's not that big of a deal, and it's not as bad as some other people's sin, and it's not really hurting anybody, and no one really knows about it, and whether it's our materialism, only they're not as materialistic as so-and-so. Oh, okay, that's good. Um, our anger, our patience, our gluttony. And here Jesus says, cut off your hand if it causes you to sin, the things you do. 
Gouge out your eye, the temptation that comes into your life. Cut off your feet, the places you might go. But if your thing is materialism, would you even cut up your credit cards? We're not talking about mutilation here. He's using hyperbole. It's John Stott says, this passage isn't about mutilation, it's about mortification, it's about dying to those things. Getting them out. But you take whatever extreme measure necessary to deal with the sin in your life, would you, would you stop going to the buffet if the thing's gluttony? Would you, would you get rid of the computer if it's lust? I mean, just think about it. the places we go, the things we do, the stuff we see, would you stop exposed? Don't be a fool. Just be wise in these situations. Would we even do that? Because some people, when I start talking about hell, you think, well, I'm a believer, so I don't, I don't have to worry about that because hell's been taken care of. You talk about dealing radically with sin. It's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That's a radical decision to deal with sin, is that God the Father sent the Son to deal with our sin. That's a radical response to sin. But some people will say, because that happened, then it's already been taken care of. My sin's already been dealt with. And I would say, well, that sounds like it's partially true, like most deception. It's partially true. He did deal with your sin on the cross, but here's the reality. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you still have sin. There's remaining sin in your life. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. He talks about it in Philippians chapter 3. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, above everything else, the fellowship of his suffering even. But then the next verse we often don't read, I haven't obtained all this, but I, that's why I, I want that to be true. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15, that he's the chief of sinners. Not that he was before his salvation, that he I am the worst sinner. Sin remains in your life. And here's the reality. If you're not willing to cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, cut off your feet, you're probably on your way to hell. Are you saying, Scott, that I can lose my salvation? No, I'm not. I'm saying you probably don't have salvation. Let that sink in because it's important. Don't deal casually with sin because it's killing you. It may have not done it at this moment, but you've got to be killing sin or sin will be killing you. John Owen, our church father, once said that. What Jesus is saying here is you deal radically with your sin. How? How do you do that? Well, in verse 49 and 50, he gives us some, some, not every way to do that, but some ways that this happens. Verse 49 is kind of a cryptic, weird verse. It's everyone will be salted with fire, which probably means that everyone, and the salt is an allusion to Old Testament sacrificial language in Leviticus, everyone who's living their life for the sake of my name, everyone who's living their life like a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2, He's going to be, it's a sacrifice salted with fire, which is oftentimes metaphorically used in the Bible for persecution and suffering. That one of the things that God will use in your life to get sin out of your life is persecution and suffering. I'm not saying that you have suffering in your life because of your sin. Please don't hear that. It might be, but I don't know, and I'm not saying that at this moment. I am saying that God will oftentimes use the suffering in your life to refine you to make you more like Jesus Christ. It's like the analogy of a statue. Uh, you ask an artist, when they see a statue, they've got a big chunk of marble. How did you make this lion or this statue of David or whatever the thing is? And say, well, I chiseled away everything that didn't look like David. I chiseled away everything that didn't look like a lion. And what God's doing in our lives, he's faithful. He began a good work in us. He's going to chisel away all the stuff that doesn't look like Jesus because that's the goal. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, it's so you become like Jesus. So one of the ways he deals with our sin is through suffering. And then he says this in verse 50, salt is good. And that's a huge statement in this culture where it was required. It's like without salt, there's not life. What was a statement then. But if it loses its saltiness, loses its purpose, its meaning, talking about a believer in Jesus, which what makes us distinct is that we are dedicated to Jesus. If it loses its saltiness, loses its commitment to Christ, how can you make it salty again? Answer, you can't. Have salt in yourselves. And then he says this statement, and be at peace with 
each other. Which is really interesting considering how this whole section started when they were arguing about who's the greatest. And he says to them, but I've given you each other. And you're, you're making it about yourself. And you ultimately are living for the fame of, it's about something bigger than any of you individually. It's about the fame of my name. And, and I've given you each other in this process. And here's the reality. When you fight sin, it is not an individual fight. You're in a battle with other followers of Jesus Christ. Some people have said it like this, that the battle with sin is a community project. And so what's a radical response to our sin for some of us here today? For some of you here today, it's to confess your sin, not just to God, but to each other. And who do you confess sin to? For some people here, it might be to get into a small group. And not because we need to up our small group numbers today or some silly arbitrary thing we came up with. Because you need other believers in your life that are going to speak truth into your life that are also on the same mission of making the fame of the name of Jesus Christ spread. And so they, when they deal with sin in your life, they're confronting you with your sin. It's not because they're judgmental jerks that don't have their stuff all figured out. It's because they want you on this team and you're slowing the team down with your sin. Cut it off. Get rid of it. Deal with it so that we can move forward with the mission. So some of you, it's living life in community. Would be a, that is a radical response in this day and age to let people actually know your life, not just what you want to show on social media, but your real life. That's different. To confess sin to one another, that's different. To deal with sin, to realize Jesus is not just there to be your therapist, your personal helper, but is your Lord and Savior. And that you live not, he's not there for your sake, you live for his sake, that your life would then shine before men and they would see him in the process. And so what we're going to do today as we conclude is we're going to spend a couple moments just in repentance before we go to singing a song again together. And some of you might need to trust Jesus as your Savior. If you do that, don't let anything hinder you from getting to Jesus Christ. That'd be the application for you from this passage. Those of you who know Jesus as your Savior, ask him, have you been living for the sake of his name or your own name or your company's name or a political party's name or whatever the thing's name might be? And then what is it in your life that would be hindering you or other people from getting to Jesus? And deal with that stuff right now. You can just go ahead and you don't have to wait for me. Just go ahead and start praying and talk to the Lord. Those of you who need to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, here's what you're doing. You're, you're saying that you have sin. All of us have sin. And that you need someone to rescue you. You can't deal with it on your own. And that Jesus Christ did that when he died on the cross for your sin and he rose from the dead. He's offering you a gift. He's offering you life. But you have to take the gift. And when you take the gift, you come under the name of Jesus Christ. He becomes Lord. He calls the shots in your life. If you want to do that today. Will you pray this prayer with me? Father God, I acknowledge my sin before you. Just pray it in your own heart. You can pray it out loud. If people hear you praying this prayer out loud, they'll rejoice with you. Trust me. Father, I acknowledge my sin before you. I am a sinner, and I need you to be my Savior. And in this moment right now, I ask your son Jesus, based on his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, to be my Savior. I call upon the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And if you did that or if you're doing that, he promises that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and you call upon him to be Lord, that you will be saved. And for those of you that are believers in Jesus, just continue to talk to God. We're going to have some instrumental music just play so you don't hear the coughing and the rustling or people moving around in here. You just talk to the Lord however you need to talk to the Lord. And then in just a moment, maybe in about a minute or so, uh, the worship team's going to lead us in, in just praising the name of Jesus Christ again as we leave here. And when you're ready, you can join them in singing.